I'd invite you to turn to the book of Galatians, the epistle to the Galatian Christians, chapter 3, and I want to read verses 1 through 7. Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 7. You foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? before whose eyes Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed, portrayed as crucified. This is the only thing I want to find out from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does He then, who provides you with the Spirit and works miracles among you, do it by the works of the law or by the hearing with faith? Even so, Abraham believed God, and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. Therefore, be sure that it is those who are of faith who are the sons of Abraham. Did you see the manager of the uh, Seattle Mariners baseball team have his temper tan from last Sunday on television? That was amazing. Um, disputing a call uh, at home plate, he was ejected from the ball game, and he went into a tirade. He was furious. So he went out and got first base and ripped it out of the ground and, and threw it down the first base line. Now, uh, everybody's kind of looking over at uh, Coach Matheny. And I, I, I promise you, he's never, he's never ripped first base out of the ground and thrown it out into right field. And, and then he went into the dugout and he started emptying the bat rack. I mean, he, he threw all the baseball bats out on the field. And, and when he finished doing that, he went to the batting helmet rack. And he got a handful of batting helmets, and he's just uh, throwing those out on the field. It was just a, uh, it was a bizarre thing to watch. Well, and he finished that, then he disappeared. I, I, I thought to myself, that guy is furious, <laughs> to say the least. That's the understatement. When the Apostle Paul wrote to the Galatians, he was furious. Now, you'll understand, he's not breaking up furniture here, but he's mad enough to. Now, the, the circumstances are uh, quite different, and the anger that the, that the apostle feels is righteous indignation, but he is furious. And he begins the third, chap the third chapter of this epistle with the statement, Oh, foolish Galatians, but it, it's just not heavy enough in the, in the English. In the original, it means, Oh, you stupid idiots. I mean, in fact, um, the New, American, New English Bible translates it, you idiots of Galatia, you stupid idiots. That might be just a, a little bit heavy, but he was furious. The folks who read this epistle had to hold it with a hot pad. And Martin Luther says that, that the book of Galatians is like hot lava that is just exploding out of the righteous anger of this man's righteous heart. Oh, you foolish Galatians, 
Who has bewitched you? Baskino is the word. It means to put under a spell by the power of an evil eye. And it was believed in those days that, that some soothsayers and magicians could, could cast an evil spell on you by the look of an evil eye, kind of like an evil eye flegal, you know, and a little Abner. You just put a whammy on folks. And the Apostle Paul says, and, and you, there's kind of a taunt in the question because he is absolutely at loss to account for what is happening here. For these people of God have turned back from their faith in Christ, faith in Jesus alone, and were turning back to Judaism again. And he taunts them with the question, who has you under the evil eye? Now what's going on here? Well, these Jewish converts were being pressured by the Judaizers to, to return to Judaism. And at the heart of what they were teaching is this, that, that faith in Christ is the beginning of that which is completed by submission to circumcision, a rite of the flesh, and that both of these, that is faith in Christ and circumcision, are essential to right standing with God. In essence, they were asking these people or pressuring them to return from the omnipotence of God to the impotence of man. They were saying, turn back and complete the work of salvation by human effort. What they were teaching was that salvation was by grace plus works. It was by faith plus effort that it was Jesus plus ritual. And the Apostle Paul can't understand how anybody with spiritual perception can fall for it, and he is just furious. And so with, with these hot words that are like Mount St. Helens' eruption, he speaks to these Galatians to jolt them back to the reality that faith in Christ is is all that is essential for salvation. And once you make your commitment to Him, then you have a responsibility to follow Him and a commitment to God and His kingdom and His church. And from these words, three things emerge. The first is a clear picture of the meaning of saving faith. Now the issue is very simple. The Judaizers were saying that works were the roots of salvation. That is, salvation grew out of man's works, the observance of, of law and ritual and right. That works were the roots of salvation. And the Apostle Paul says, not so. Works are the fruits of salvation. That is, works are human effort, service or ministry is that which genuine salvation produces. No wonder he was angry. For that is the watershed of the whole concept of the Christian faith. Is salvation by grace? If it is, it is by grace apart from works. And he asked this question. He said, I want one thing from you. How did you receive the Holy Spirit? Did you receive the Holy Spirit by the works of the flesh or by the hearing of faith? And the whole context and the structure assumes the obvious answer. I mean, you can't miss that. You can't make a mistake about that. The obvious answer, in fact, the rhetorical question is really, really not to get an answer, but to make a point. The answer is why we received the Holy Spirit by the hearing of faith. That is, 
that a person is saved by his response to what God has already done for him in Christ. Salvation is the result of one's faith in the finished work of Jesus Christ. It is not possible for you to add anything to that. As a matter of fact, it's not even necessary. Now these Judaizers would never admit that they were detracting from Jesus, but I want you to watch this. If a person believes that, it, that salvation is the result of faith in Jesus Christ, in the finished work of Christ, plus anything else, he diminishes or he rejects that finished work when he does that. It is not salvation by faith plus anything. It is salvation by faith in the finished work of Christ and by that alone. Now, are there any modern Judaizers? A modern Judaizer is a person who says that salvation is by faith in Christ indeed plus baptism or church membership or the works of the flesh. And anybody... Uh, who, who believes that or sees that diminishes or rejects the faith in the finished work of Christ alone. Now the question is, and it's a legitimate one, if salvation is by faith and that alone, just faith in the finished work of God's grace, what part does works play? And, and, and Baptists have been accused of a lot of things. One of them is that if I believed like you, I'd live like I wanted to, you know. I'd just live like the devil for the rest of the time, just come forward and make a decision. What parts does works play in eternal salvation if salvation is by faith in the finished work of Christ? Well, according to the Apostle Paul, works are the fruits of that salvation, are that saving faith, and actually they are the test of it. They validate it. According to the Apostle Paul, if you have genuine saving faith, the way you test that or the way you, you, you validate that saving faith is by the works of your life, redemptive works of your life. You know that little song that we, sang in, that we used to sing in Bible school? I guess we still do. You know, uh, if you're happy and you know it, clap your hands. You know how that song goes. And, and, and if you're happy and you know it, then your life will surely show it. Then you go second stanza is, if you're happy and you know it, stomp your feet. And you stomp your feet and, and, and it goes on down and it says, and the third is, if you're happy and you know it, turn around. That's where it gets exciting in Bible school. And we get to turn around, you know. And, and then you get to, the, then you say, if you're happy and you know it, do all three. And you clap your hands, stomp your feet and turn around. Uh, Chuck, Chuck Swindoll said one day he was driving his little Volkswagen down a main street in Fullerton, California, and his kids were in the back seat and people couldn't see him sitting down, kind of scrunched down the back seat, and they were singing this song. And they pulled up to a stoplight, and he said just at the time they got the stoplight, they got to the part that says, clap your hands, stomp your feet, and turn around. So he said, I wasn't going to... Uh, I wasn't going to, you know, uh, be outdone. So he said, I, I, 
clapped my hands, I stomped my feet, and I jumped out of my Volkswagen and turned around and got back in and sat down. And he said, I was totally oblivious to anything happening to, you know, uh, around me. He said, just about that time, I looked, and he said, there was just cars in the next lane. And everybody just kind of, just kinda looking over and saying, thinking to themselves, oh, now what is that? You know, what are they doing? And clapping their hands, stomping their feet, jumping out and turn, going through this Chinese fire drill. And they, but, but, but the point that Chuck Swindoll makes is that the last stanza of that is, if you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. That's what the Apostle Paul is driving home here. He wants us to remember that faith is not belief in a statement. Faith is commitment to the person of God and His work. And if a person has had a genuine experience of saving faith, why doesn't his life show it? I I, I have the same kind of a problem. I mean, it it bothers me a little bit. When when I walk the streets, you know, of of our city, and I I hear a person say, you know, well, what about old so-and-so? Is he say, well, what about this? And, And lay out some of the patterns of his life. Now, not only does the, does, the, does the apostle want to make it clear that, that salvation's saving faith is seen in its practice, he also wants to make it clear that saving faith is seen in its perseverance. The thing that's bothered, bothering the apostle here was that these people had the, had, had, had the desire to turn back, turn away from God and their commitment to Him. He couldn't understand that. Now, now, if he were alive in the modern age, he'd see that happening all the time. For, um, for this falling away is a, is a common practice. This turning away from commitments is a, is a common practice. He couldn't, he couldn't understand that. Um, it's what Adrian Rogers calls Alka-Seltzer Christians. You know, he said... If, if faith fizzles before it finishes, it was faulty at the first. And he calls them Alka-Seltzer Christians. He said, you know, you put two in a glass of water and it fizzles, then disappears. He said, I've got bunches of Alka-Seltzer Christians. Uh, you know, they fizzle and disappear and I don't know where they are. And the Apostle John struggles with that when he says, they went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. And that's what the Apostle Paul is is emphasizing in this epistle. If you've really made a commitment to Jesus Christ, that faith will be evidenced in practice and perseverance. It's the fruit of saving faith. But not only that, this text suggests the motivation of saving faith. Now, what motivates a person to give his life to Jesus Christ many times is the key to whether that person has really had an experience of salvation, whether he stays with it or not. Now notice the motivation of saving faith. I want you to watch this. He said, before whose eyes Jesus Christ, before your eyes Jesus Christ has been openly crucified among you. Now the word is prographe. It's a heavy word in the Greek. It means to placard. And when some special event was taking place in the city, they didn't have newspapers and and television or radio, they put a they put it up on a billboard so that every eye could see it and you couldn't miss it. They would prograph the event, 
maybe there was a town council meeting taking place in Philippi and they wanted to let everybody know about it. They'd prographe that announcement in the most notable place. I don't know whether you've been down I-35 into Fort Worth or not, but as you come into the edge of Fort Worth, you, go, you, you kind of go up over this uh, railroad track. There's, there's, a, there's a kind of an overpass there, down 35 as you head into Fort Worth. And, and, and as you come up over that overpass, there's a bend in the, in the highway, in the, in the expressway, freeway. And right there on the edge of the highway is a sign. And, and because you're up on an overpass, the sign is just about highway height, really. And as you, as you come toward that, you make a bend. It looks like you're going to, from a, about a half a mile away, it looks like you're going to run right into that sign. I mean, it's, you can't miss it. It's right there for everybody to see. That's the idea that he says here. Now watch this. He said, By our preaching and by our teaching, we have prographed, we have billboarded the death of Jesus before your eyes. It was as though you were there when they cut his back with a cat of nine tails. It was as though you were there when they pulled out his beard and spat on the Son of God. It was as though you were an eyewitness when they took that crown of thorns, thorns about that long, and pressed them down into his brow. It was as though you were there when they laid him down on a crossbeam and with heavy hammer, they nailed spikes into his hand. It was as though you were an eyewitness when that crossbeam dropped into the socket of the earth and tore his flesh. It was as though you were an eyewitness when he gasped with thirst and cried out, Father, forgive them, and screamed out into the darkness, My God, why have you forsaken me? It was as though you stood there and watched when the sky became dark and the earth gave up the dead while you were there to see him crucified. Now, no wonder he was angry. For if a man can be motivated to follow Jesus because of that, how can he ever turn back from that? What do we motivate people? How do we motivate people to follow Christ? Sometimes with fear. Sometimes with guilt. Occasionally somebody will say to me after the service, Man, Pastor, that was a great sermon. I feel so terrible. I want to say, Well, I'm I'm sorry. I, I, didn't, I don't want to give you, you know, make you feel terrible. I want to give you hope. We, we motivate people sometimes with guilt and fear. You heard about the guy who was, his pastor and his church was encouraging to be a, a soul winner, a witness, and he just, he just couldn't do it. He, he, they wanted him, they told him he should, but they didn't tell him how. And he felt so guilty because he wasn't winning people to the Lord and they had a big win school and he went to it and he just felt terrible. He just didn't have the nerve to, to approach somebody, but he knew he should and he felt guilty. He was a barber. The next morning after the win school, he was, a guy came in, sat down in a chair and he wanted to shave. This guy was lathering him up and he was thinking, I need to witness to this man. I'm supposed to witness to everybody. I don't know what to say. I'm so scared, but I feel so guilty if I don't. He was stropping his razor and his face was lathered and he was just got himself worked up into a frenzy. And finally he blurted out as he moved toward the guy with, that needed the shave, Are you ready to die? And, 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 and the guy, you know, the, the story is that they've not seen that guy who had that fully lathered face 
in that barbershop sense. Uh, you, you know, what, what motivates us to, to, to serve the Lord? Well, sometimes it's out of fear and, and sometimes it's out of guilt. But for the Apostle Paul, the thing that motivates us to serve God is the prographed Christ. Now, folks, if you don't commit your life to Jesus Christ and follow Him all the way, all the way because of what He's done for you, you'll never serve Him. How can anybody look upon Him who has been openly crucified and look away to anything else? That's the question. Near the cross, O Lamb of God, bring its scenes before me. Help me walk from day to day with its shadows o'er me. See from His head, His hands, His feet, sorrow and love flow mingled down. Did e'er such love and sorrow meet, or thorns compose so rich a crown? Were the whole realm of nature mine, that were a present far too small, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, my all. Can you look upon Him and ever look away? Jesus said, if you put your hand to the plow and look back, you're not fit. For the kingdom. Hallmark Playhouse has him sitting in his cell listening to the sounds going on outside. Here's his own name called Barabbas. Barabbas. And he knows today is the day of his death. As he sits in his cell determined that he'll go to his death a man, he hears another chant going up outside. Jesus, crucify him. Jesus, crucify him. He has never heard that man's name before. Someone in the cell next door, next cell block, speaks and says, My, my, my information is that the rabbi is going to be crucified today, Jesus of Nazareth. About that time, the cell block door where Barabbas stands is opened, and they come in to say, Get out of here. You're free. And Barabbas says with a snarl, You're not going to make me have false hopes. Go torture somebody else with your dreams. And they hit him in the back, in the small of the back, with the butt of their sword and said, Out of here, you scoundrel. You're free to go. As he staggers out of his cell, he asks, Why am I free? Because the rabbi is dying in your place. I must see, he thought, a man who is worse than I. And so he made his way out to where the crowd had gathered, and he saw him on that center cross. He saw the purest look he'd ever seen. He saw the tenderest eyes he had ever seen. He heard the sweetest voice when he spoke from that cross. The birds hushed their singing. Now the Hallmark Hall of Fame says, in their, now their play says, that he, was never, he never became a convert, but he went to his grave insane, having looked upon him who died and turned away. Now the Apostle Paul says, this is the motivation for faith, for saving faith. You stupid idiots of Galatia, don't you see it? Jesus has died for you. And that's enough.
and that's enough. But there's one last thought, please, and I have plenty of time to develop it. That is, the magnificence of the saving faith. There is the meaning of saving faith. There is the motivation for saving faith. And then he describes for us the magnificence of saving faith. Now, there's some passages of Scripture that are written like symphonies. They start out kind of ominous, and there's a kind of a beat and a sound there, and you can just feel them as they build. And as these passages build, you can, you can just see the verses rising up on the edge of the, of the chair, and then on tiptoes, and then at the end of the passage, you can just hear the clash of the cymbals. This is one of those passages. And the crescendo mounts as he describes the magnificence of saving faith. And the, first, um, and the first part of it is this. You have received. You have received the presence of the Holy Spirit. Now he asks, tell me, how did you receive the Holy Spirit? By the works of the flesh or by the hearing of faith? Rhetorical question. The answer is obvious, by the hearing of faith. But don't miss, the, don't miss the meaning of that verse by the rhetorical question. Don't miss the fact that he was saying, we have received the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit lives in us. God has come to indwell us. And Ritterboss, Ritterboss says, he calls this statement the most remarkable, unmistakable evidence of God's favor and the plainest guarantee of eternal redemption in all of Scripture. God has come to indwell us. The fulfillment of the promise of Jesus, I'm going to pray the Father and He'll send another comforter who will abide with you forever. Is there a more wonderful statement anywhere than this? That we are the dwelling place of God. This body is the citadel, is the dwelling place of regality of the King. Is there anything any greater than that? I guess the only thing that might be greater than that statement is this that He abides with us forever. He's come to stay. And Ron Dunn says, My heart is not a hotel when the checkout time, with a checkout time, 12 noon on Sunday. He's come to take up His abode. He's come to dwell in me forever. When I was over at England, I, just, I, I worked this illustration in so that those visitors would know that I've been abroad. When I was over in England, and you go to Buckingham Palace, the way you know if the Queen is there is that they fly the Union Jack above the palace. It, is, it, it indicates that the Queen is in residence. Now the Apostle Paul is saying, the Holy Spirit lives in your heart. He, God has come to dwell in your heart and your life. The works of your life are the flag is the flag that flies indicative of His presence. Now the thing builds. We not only have received the presence of the Holy Spirit, we achieve the perfection of the Holy Spirit. Now he said, second rhetorical question, how were you perfected by the hearing of faith or the works by the Spirit or the works of the flesh? Now the word perfected there means mature. It means the finished product. It means, the, the, it means maturity. It means 
the, the, the completed work of God. Now, don't miss the point with the rhetorical question. The point is that, that one day we will stand the finished product, the perfected, the finished, the completed work. Now, the question is not, how do you stand before God, the finished product, perfected as He calls it? It's not, are you going to do that? The question is, how do you, how do you get there? And the answer is obvious, by the work of the Spirit of God within you. Now, watch this. He's saying, one of these days, you're going to be perfected, matured, the finished product, because of the Holy Spirit of God working in your life. He which hath begun a good work in you will perform it to the day of Jesus. He works in you both to will and to do His good pleasure. The Holy Spirit is at work to perfect us and to, and to perform, make us perform to, to finish us. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul says that we are conformed, we're predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. Now there's a lot of debate about what is predestination. There's some people who believe that predestination means that, that God has ordered, has planned every and worked out every detail of a person's life before he gets there and they can do nothing about it. Like the lady who fell down a flight of stairs, brushed herself off and said, well, I'm glad that's over. Now, I, I, don't, I, don't, believe, I don't believe it quite like that. But, but I do believe that, that, that God has a divine plan for everyone who receives His Son, who trusts in His Son, and that not all of hell itself can defeat that divine plan from being accomplished. And that means that everything that's happening to me, God is either put into my life, He's bringing circumstances into my life, He is withholding things from my life in order that I might be perfected like His Son. That's the magnificence of saving faith. And the clashing of the symbols is you have experienced the performance of saving faith. Now he said this. He said, Who works these miracles among you? How are they accomplished? The Spirit or the works of the flesh? Well, the answer to that is absolutely obvious. The miraculous is the work of God. Don't miss the point of this. He is saying that the believer lives in the realm of the miraculous. The believer moves about in the atmosphere of the miraculous. The difference between the believer and the unbeliever is that the believer lives in the atmosphere and the environment of the miraculous, the supernatural. Now, what is a miracle? A miracle is something that surprises us and for which we cannot account. But in the, in, the, in the wisdom and the power and the love of God... Now watch this, I don't want to be misunderstood. In the wisdom and the power and the love of God, there's no such thing as supernatural. For what is supernatural to us is natural to Him. And every miracle in the Old Testament and in the New Testament is just God doing naturally. It's just God acting naturally. He's just being himself. Now watch this. The believer lives in the realm of the supernatural and if he, will, if he will not prevent, if he will not limit God, God will be himself in his life and when God is himself, he does everything supernaturally. Isn't that amazing? Let me tell you what's the problem with most of us. There's a vast discrepancy between our experience and God's word. That's the problem. God's, God's promises. 
And, and I read over there in the book of Hebrews, and I read about these men who stopped the mouths of lions and called down fire and, and, and did all those miraculous things. And, 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 and there's a big difference between what happened then and my experience. Let me tell you for sure. And, and most of the time we blame God for that. We'll say, well... God didn't really want, He didn't really do that in this day and time. That, that, that's not really meant for us. Is, is, that really, is that really right? I mean, did, did He do something for them that he, he didn't want to do for us? What about this song? He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. What, what, what we need to do, listen to me, what we need to do is to lift the level of our experience up to the level of God's Word and God's promise, not try to bring His promise down to the level of our experience. And what the Apostle Paul is saying is that if a man abandons his life to the control of the Holy Spirit, God cannot act naturally. And when God acts naturally, everything is supernatural. Is there anything about your life that can only be explained in terms of God? You know what living the Christian life is? It's just doing what comes supernaturally. And I guess the songwriter put it in words that we need to memorize. Jesus, what a friend of sinners. Jesus, lover of my soul. Friends may fail me, foes assail me. He, my Savior, makes me whole. Jesus, what a strength and weakness. Let me hide myself in Thee. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Hallelujah. What a friend. Saving, helping, keeping, loving. He is with me to the end. Do you know the Lord? Have you ever been saved? Do you know the magnificence of saving faith? Join me in prayer. Father, I thank you for this throbbing word from your scripture. The meaning of what it means. The meaning of saving faith. The motivation of saving faith that Christ has been impaled upon a cross for us. The magnificence of saving faith that our bodies become the royal residence that we receive through His work in us, perfection. And that we see the performance of God in miraculous ways day by day. Oh, how our hearts yearn and hunger for that. Grant us the courage to make the divine, take the divine initiative, the divine choice, respond to the divine will in this human moment. Because I pray in Jesus' name and for His sake. Now in this place, we have three invitations. The first invitation is for you to respond publicly to Jesus Christ. To respond publicly to God's finished work. And faith in His finished work.
Have you ever turned from life of effort, works, etc., to Jesus only for salvation? Repented of a life where you were doing it in control to Him and Him alone. The second invitation this morning is for those of us who have strayed from God. And we have that in our life, in our record, in our witness that is a detriment to the kingdom and to the faith of others. I ask you to repent of it, confess it before men. Get right with God and with others. The third invitation is for you to come and join the church. If there's any other way than this way to do His work, then through the church, then the Holy Spirit didn't tell us about it. There's no better way. There's no other way. And His body of believers, come and join us.